Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. In the Buddha, his teaching, and the fellowship most excellent, I take my, we take our refuge until enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other transcendent virtues, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. May the merit of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. <clears throat> it seems to me that our three basic needs for food, security, and love are so mixed and mingled and entwined that we cannot straightly think of one without the others. So it happens what, when, that when I write of hunger, I am really writing about love and the hunger for it, and warmth and the love of it and the hunger for it, and then the warmth and the richness and fine reality of hunger satisfied and it is all one. There is food in the bowl, and more often than not, because of what honesty I have, there is nourishment in the heart to feed the wilder, more insistent hungers. There is communion of more than our bodies when bread is broken and wine drunk. And that is my answer when people ask me, why do you write about hunger and not wars or love? Welcome to the Ocean Mind Sangha first online Zazenkai, all day sit. And I did not say this at the beginning because I had just given a talk about this and so I forgot, but you know, we're really gathered here to celebrate and embody the Buddha's enlightenment. But I was away last week when it would traditionally be celebrated. And so I said, we would do it, we would do it today. And so we're really, not just modeling, we're, we're really becoming the Buddha's aspiration and his commitment to wake up to the truth of his life, to the truth of all life. 
And so in our own humble ways, we're doing as the Buddha did. We're sitting as he sat in order to plumb the depths of our minds, of our hearts, and to wake up so that we can be, as I said on Wednesday, nobody but ourselves, borrowing from E.E. Cummings. And, and he writes that as nobody dash but dash ourselves, as one word, nobody but ourselves. And since the talk, I've, I've brought this up a couple of times with some of you, and uh, some interesting questions have come up. And let me, let me say what E. Cummings said completely, in a world that will have us be like everyone else, the work of seeing who we are and being who we are completely, he said is the hardest fight we will fight. I don't love that, that language. Let's say that it's, it's the most important work that we will do. And one of you said after the talk, well, you know, the Buddha worked so hard, clearly, and all the teachers after him have worked so hard, and all the practitioners, you're working also hard, and you're saying, just be yourself. Wait, come on. Come on, just be yourself. I am saying that. I am saying that. All of this work to be nobody but ourselves. So we can be who we are unimpededly. And in Zen, particularly, we do this primarily through Zazen. You know, how do you get to know who you are? Well, this is one way. And in my very limited experience, it is the most powerful, most effective, most direct way of doing this. Of course, the other side of it, somebody said to me just yesterday, well, how, how is this? How can you, you work to be fully yourself when there is no self? Exactly. Exactly. That is what we're here to find out. No, what we're here to realize. Mired in the world of self, selves, self and other. It's easy to believe what we think and what others think. I think I shared with you that I've been reading this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and one of the things that we're saying is that just the way our minds are wired, if you see, if you read, if you hear a particular fact, whether true or not, often enough, just the, the familiarity of it will start to make you believe that it's true. I mean, that is how fake news has spread. That is how the most outrageous claims get repeated in social media over and over and over again. And otherwise, you know, relatively or, or quite intelligent people believe, you know, the, the, really the most outlandish stories. 
you just keep flooding the brain with the same thing over and over and over again. So just stop to think about that for a second. If every day you're telling yourself, I'm not worthy, after a while, you're going to start to believe it. So don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Begin first by noticing, oh, I'm doing that. Is this a satisfying thought? Is this a true thought? Or as the Buddha said of right speech, is this true? Is this necessary? And is this kind? I mean, if you apply that test, it fails blatantly. So just cross that out of your mm, go-to beliefs. And if you've been saying it for a long time or something like it, I can't do this. Again, just notice. Just notice what it is that you're telling yourself and determine, wish for yourself to actually nourish yourself with what is true, with what is life-giving, what will help you and others. Most of you know that story I love to quote of A.J. Musty who during the Vietnam War stood outside the White House every night holding a candle. And a reporter said to him, Reverend, do you really think that standing here holding your candle is gonna change the country's policies? And Musty said, sir, you have this all wrong. I'm not doing this to change the country. I'm doing it so the country won't change me. I'm doing it to be nobody but myself. That is what Zazen is. And so if you ever begin to doubt or you compare yourself to somebody else who's practicing, that I used to say, um, that Roshi, my first teacher used to say, you know, people would get very wrapped up in where everybody else was. And because we used to sit in, in a hierarchical order at the monastery, you could, you could sort of tell more or less where everybody was. And it, it wreaked havoc in people's minds. And he would always say, but this is like comparing apples to elephants. One person's experience is not your experience. I mean, maybe somebody takes 10 years to pass Mu and somebody takes six months. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that the person who took less time is a better practitioner. It just means there are certain circumstances that brought this about. And of course, the most important thing always is what do you do with it? What do you do with what you see? This is about being nobody but ourselves. And when you start to veer off 
and become someone else because it seems easier, more comfortable, less scary. Just think, is this how I want to live my life? When nobody else can live my life for me. And so that quote I read at the beginning is by MFK Fisher. She was a very well-known food writer through the 1930s into the 60s, 70s. She worked for, for many years. And Auden, W.H. Auden, actually said something like, there is no other writer writing better prose right now. It's quite a thing to say by A.H. Auden, W.H. Auden. She did write very beautifully. And it seems that she was often asked, well, why are you writing about this? Why not write about that? Why, don't, why not write about more pressing things? And her response is, when I write about hunger, I'm really writing about love and how we hunger for it. Isn't that true? Every single one of us, whether we admit it or not. And I'm writing about warmth and the love of it. Mm, warmth, let's call it intimacy, let's call it closeness. And the hunger for it. And then the warmth and the richness and fine reality of hunger satisfied. And it is all one. I said on Wednesday, to want to long for, to hunger for closeness, for meaningful relationships is not too much to ask. To want to be seen, to see and be seen is not too much to ask. And so if we've been moving in circles, in places where that's not happening, consider, it's not that there's anything wrong with you. They're probably just not the right spaces for you. And just because I think it is accurate to say that all of us want closeness and love and intimacy, but not all of us are in touch with it, with that hunger. And for some of us, we may want it desperately, and we may be terrified of it. Right? And, so, and so just having that longing, that hunger is not enough. Knowing how to have it be satisfied. And then really having the courage, the courage and determination to find in yourself and your, in your relationships with everything, how to sate that hunger, that hunger. That's the work. That's the work. And so that, that closeness, that warmth, that richness, and I like how she said, I love how she says, the fine reality of hunger, satisfied. I mean, that's what's at the heart of Oriyoki, of making and taking a meal with attention, 
with love and with reverence. And it extends to all of our lives. Orioki means the container that holds the right amount. And traditionally, it refers to the monk's bowls, the begging bowl. But it also refers to this container. Every single one of us is a container that holds the right amount of hunger and satisfaction, of love and attention. We have the capacity to hone in on the details of our lives and to zoom out and take in the big picture. I mean, that's why I never stop marveling at consciousness. That we can hold all of this. Sometimes with difficulty, but still. And every single one of us, I think I would say again, has that hunger for living those details and that big picture well and kindly. And so I think Fisher was right. I mean, we want nourishment of all sorts of, all different kinds. And we want love and we want security. And by security, I understand this as we want to know that we're safe. Just as we say in the four immeasurables, right? the, the short version of the four immeasurables, may all beings be safe. You could also think of that as may all beings know who they are, because that's where the safety is. As Shantideva says, you can, you can spend all your time and energy covering the world with leather, right? trying to create safety outside. Or you can put leather sandals on your feet. You can train your mind. You can open your heart. So that you will know more and more and better and better how to satisfy each of those needs for nourishment, for love, for security. Orioki was developed uh, in Japan, as, as far as I understand. I don't think there was a, a, a version in China. I believe that's true. Uh, so the Buddha traditionally from the, the probably this was a I couldn't find I haven't been able to find, you know, the origins of the alms rounds. Um, but I have a feeling that that this was something that the Buddha inherited. And so the practice was for the mendicants, you know, there weren't even monasteries at the time. They were just, they would just sit in these groves, these plots of ground that sometimes would be given to them, or sometimes they would just find them. 
And um, the practice was once a day before noon for the mendicants to go into a village with their begging bowls and beg for their food. And, and they would do this in exchange for the Dharma. They would do a chant, they would do a prayer, they would give a teaching. And they would go from door to door doing this. And there are countries, especially in the Southeast Asian countries, where that's still practiced. And I've never done this, this practice myself, but just from the years that I spent as a monastic and the life-changing practice that it was to, to learn to ask for something, because I depended in, in almost every way, I depended, depended on um, lay practitioners. And everyone's, you know, very often things were given very generously, very, very uh, openly. But every once in a while, I needed to ask. And in the beginning, I hated it. I hated feeling dependent on somebody. And always my feeling was like, well, I don't want to bother them. And once or twice, I was in a situation where I essentially understood that I didn't have a choice, that if I was going to be okay, I needed to reach out and ask for help. And so I did. And it was incredible. Not only was the other person more than willing to step forward, it, it gave me the opportunity to learn to receive without making a big deal of it. You know, I, I understood, you can ask. And if the other person can't do it, trust them to tell you, I can't, or I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, they're an adult. Why are you protecting them? They can take care of themselves. You take care of yourself. But most of the time, people wanted, people wanted to give. There's a reason it is the first of the paramitas, the perfections. Because we understand that something happens when we extend ourselves. It feels good. And I, I, um, it saddens me for you know, people who, who do not have that experience, either because they were not taught or because when they asked, the response was punitive. But this is such a big part of what is happening in Orioki, especially when we do the formal, the whole ceremony, because there is a group of servers, and they're quite literally bringing you, serving you the food. And so it makes it very clear, very poignant, that interdependence. Living in a monastery makes that very clear every day. Without you, and you, and you, and you, and you, I could not do this. That is very clear in my life now. Without you, and you, and you, and you, I could not do this. And that is always true. 
but it's good to be reminded. It's good for that to be made clear so that we don't forget. There's a sutra called Mahabuddhavamsa, the great chronicle of the Buddhas. And it tells the story that at one point the Buddha is the Buddha, he's, he's awakened, and he goes back to visit his father, King Suddhodana. And he goes on alms rounds, as he normally did. And the king gets offended. He gets offended. He says, he says, do you think we don't have enough food to feed you and all of your monks? And his son says, oh, royal father, the lineage of Shakya rulers is your lineage. My ancestors are the Buddhas. And then he lists some of them from Dipankara, Kondana, Mangala, down to Kashyapa. And all of these Buddhas have always gone from house to house to receive alms. This very practice of receiving alms has always been our means of livelihood. This is what we do. This is my role as a monastic. Your role as a king is to rule, is to provide. My role is to ask. And it is, I think, um, significant that he brings up the lineage. He says, your lineage is the Shakya clan. My lineage are the Buddhas. We observe that to this day. Right? And the transmission documents that I, that I received, that I, that I hand wrote, is the lineage of all of the men and then the women who made it possible through their lives for me to live this life. Probably the reason that we chant a short biography of the Buddha at the beginning of Oriyoki. We, we, we bring into the room the place where he was born, the place where he was enlightened, where he taught mostly, and where he entered Nirvana. And then we bring the rest part of the lineage. We chant the names of the Buddha, bringing into the room the lineage. Why? Why do this before we chant the Milgatha, where we more concretely say, name, who and what this food is for? Now, why do this before even putting a single bite of food in our mouths? I think that first line of the Milgatha gives us the answer. 72 labors brought us this food, we should know how it comes to us. 72 labors, there's probably a list somewhere of the 72 labors in a monastery that, that very concretely and very directly mm, described the, the workings, what it took to run a monastery and therefore to put food on the table. 
But it's not just that. It's not just the logistics and the travel and the work involved in, in getting this food to our plates, but also that line, the line of beings, which has brought the food of the Dharma through the years, all the way down to us. We are here because Siddhartha Gautama was born and because he awakened and because he taught and he died and his teachings continued to be handed down by all of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who came after. My good friend Lama Yeshe, whom many of you know, teacher in the Karma Kagyu lineage, uh, said during one of our conversations, somebody brought up um, just the challenge, the challenge of teaching uh, as lay teachers, because all of us in that group, no, not all of us are, but all of us are working independently. I mean, not, not as part of monasteries. And, you know, just the challenge of that. And at one point, Yeshe said, well, you know, whenever I'm, I'm um, uncertain in, in any way, I just remind myself, I work for the Buddha. I'm not going to worry. I'm just going to align myself with his teaching and I'll be fine. And so that's what I do now. I just remind myself, the Buddha is my boss. <laughs> I just need to align myself with the Dharma which various teachers have been telling me throughout, and I'll be fine. And lo and behold, I am, I have been, and I am. And so these, these chants are reminding us of the good karma that brought us to this time and place as I said at the beginning of the day, the good karma of being born in human form, the good karma of having a mind aware enough, sharp enough to want the teachings and to be able to understand them, at least somewhat. And then there's the Milgatha, right? First, we consider <clears throat> all the labors that brought us the food. And then we reflect on whether our virtue and practice deserve it. And I've told a story about a couple who went to the monastery and we were chanting the meal gatha in the dining hall and they heard that line and they got offended and walked out. How dare you question my virtue? How dare you question whether I deserve to eat this food? I mean, it is, a, it is a poignant line. I've, I've told you of the, of the Dharma attendant who, who joked, or maybe it was one of the monastics who joked that at some point one of the Dharma attendants should call the line for private teaching and say, the line is open to those whose virtue and practice deserve it. And everybody just stays there <laughs> on their seat. One bold person runs straight to the line. How do you know? How do you know if your virtue and practice deserve it? What does it mean to be deserving of this food, 
It's not what we think. It's not what we think. And then it says, third, as we desire the natural order of mind, to be free from clinging, we must be free from greed. We desire the bright, luminous, cognizant order of mind, order of the universe. And so to get there, to be that, we need to be free from clinging and from greed, which essentially separates. I mean, it's not that it's, that it's less virtuous in itself. It's not that it's impure or wrong, even though it has been characterized that way. It is simply that it obstructs. It gets in the way. But if that natural order of mind is that bright knowledge, stability, then why doesn't it feel like it so much of the time? Because we still get caught, because we get confused, because we get discouraged and distracted. And so this is saying we eat to support our lives. That's the fourth. We to support our lives and the fifth is to attain our way. So we're not just eating because that's the next thing to do. I mean, yes, our bodies need it. But from the perspective of the Dharma, we're doing it so that we can support this body, this mind, so we can attain the way. Notice that the chant does not say we eat to feel better about ourselves, to cover over difficult feelings. We eat when we're bored or restless or angry or lonely. All things that we do at some point or another. But it's really all there. I mean, if we can do this line, we eat to nourish, to, to, to support our lives and to attain the way, really that's it. We wouldn't need anything else. And I love that it says it like that. We eat to attain our way. Did you notice that? Not the way, not the Buddha's way, which is in many, many other chants. We eat, we, we eat to attain our way, our very own path. Which, of course, is not separate from the Noble Eightfold Path, but which we must nevertheless forge in our own way. This is important. This is how each of us meets the Dharma, right? recognizing the particular things that call to us and nourishing those. To be able to ask yourself, what do I need and how do I give it to myself is so important. Right? I've said so many times, you learn more and more how to be your own teacher, how to give yourself what you need. And not because you can't use that support. Of course you can. But because ultimately that's where the power is. And that is where 
liturgy, I think, plays a big part, and where creativity plays a big part. You know, some of you have shared how it is that you practice, the things that you've devised for yourself, reminders, techniques, supports, in order to, first of all, remember to practice, and then to continue to do it. That's it. That's exactly it. So much of my job is to be a cheerleader for you, is to keep reminding you, yes, you can, yes, you can do this, yes, 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 you're doing it, you're telling me you're not doing it, but you're doing it, I'm seeing it, you're doing it. I say this all the time, but you're the one who's doing it, not me. And so we also determine how to practice, how much or just the right amount. And then the last part of the chant is, a, is an offering, is saying, okay, there's the taking of the food to nourish myself, and then there's the offering of the food. We offer it to the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We offer it to our parents, to our teachers, and to all beings, it says, in the six worlds. The hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, the human realm, the Asuras, the um, jealous gods, and the divas, the heavenly gods. Essentially, we're offering it to everyone, everywhere. And then it says, we, thus, we eat this food with everyone. This too is important. Every time we feed ourselves, we're doing that with everyone and everything. Which means, if you starve yourself in any way, not just with food, everyone starves. If you deny, if you indulge, or if you eat gratefully with careful attention, you do so with everyone. Nothing that is happening is happening just to you. Nothing that you do is just for you. That is a big responsibility, and that is also the biggest gift. Because if you're having a, a difficult time, you can nourish with somebody else's goodness. When I was at the monastery, I, I would very deliberately invoke the mountain, the power of the mountain, the weather, the rain, the rain, when I was flagging. And of course, the power of my teacher sitting, the power of the person sitting next to me. Because of course, they work interdependently. An offering comes in because when we are mired in something, in fear or anger or ignorance, we can offer that, right? I've said this, and Shantideva says it in the study that, that we did, anything that is coming up and anything that you can imagine, you offer. So if you're struggling, offer that. If you're full of aspiration and energy and aliveness, offer that. 
We offer that energy, that karma, that merit, so that I and all beings may progress along the path. And none of it is ever extra. None of it is ever wasted. So even those periods when we think, I was in the deepest pit of despair. Somebody else in the world was too. If any part of your mind can remember, okay, offer. Just even just that, that, that gesture. That's still energy moving us along the path. Finally, we to stop all evil, to practice good and to save all sentient beings and to accomplish the Buddha way. The three pure precepts and our aspiration. The vow that fuels, that nourishes all of it. You know, you think you're just having a little ramen, a little bread with egg, a little salad. But you're actually changing the world. If you really take in what these teachings are saying and you embody it, you are changing the world with how and what you eat. And again, we're doing this every day, every one of us, but Oriyoki makes that obvious. There is food in the bowl, and more often than not, because of what honesty I have. There is nourishment in the heart to feed the wilder, more insistent hungers. Based on our honest estimation of what it is that we need, we nourish our bellies, we nourish our hearts, we nourish our minds, so that we may continue to live and practice and realize and actualize. And so, let me ask you this as we close. Do you know what your wild, insistent hunger is? Or hungers? And more to the point, are you nourishing it? Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisedaughtered.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.